When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, December 20th, 2021. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Jeffrey Schulze from Clearbridge. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Real Vision. Hey, Maggie. Happy to be here. Yeah, great, great to have you with us. And on a day where there's a lot to talk about, it was pretty volatile for U.S. markets. We saw U.S. equities um, trade down about 1.5% across the board, and we're actually a little bit off our lows. WTI crude prices fell 3%, while natural gas jumped 4.5%, all while the 10-year yield remained flat, kind of anchored at that 1.42%. And overseas, we saw big moves, too. China cut interest rates for the first time in 20 months. That was pretty significant. And Turkey's currency crisis continued, with the lira falling to a record low. Weston Nakamura has the latest from Tokyo. Hey, thanks, guys. So two quick things. PBOC uh, in China made a very small cut to its loan prime rate today, LPR. Um, One-year LPR was cut by only five basis points to 3.8%. So it's more symbolic than anything, um, but it does mark the first LPR cut since uh, April 2020 coming off of the COVID crash. What they left unchanged, however, was the five-year LPR, which is what mortgages reference off of. In other words, this is not so much, you know, to signal support um, for stronger borrowers as it is to underscore their continued lack of aid for the property sector and their preferences for which sectors they want to stimulate the economy, and more importantly, which ones they do not. Keep your eyes uh, on this policy versus markets here, because while markets may have sold off in part due to Senator Manchin's rejecting of Joe Biden's bill, during Asia hours, the Nikkei, E-minis, and of course, Hang Seng Index, they all sold off on the PBOC LPR cut today. So it certainly is a global market driver out of Asia. And then I just need to bring up the Turkish lira, because it's only been a month since I flagged the lira risk on the daily briefing you know, market update. But since then, the lira has gotten slammed 80% in the past month. Um, They're now coming off the fourth consecutive rate cut last week. And while the central bank signaled this is it for rate cuts, President Erdogan, the real head of the central bank, said otherwise once again this weekend. So the lira is now falling by at least 2% every single day over the past week at 9 a.m. local time in Istanbul. And then on last Friday, a very alarming turn as the Turkish stock market, which had been an enormous rally right alongside dollar lira, that finally cracked and did a 14% cliff dive on the day. So keep your eyes on these two idiosyncratic emerging markets going against the rest of the world's policy tightening. Uh, And that's it. Thanks. So, Jeff, an awful lot to digest here uh, and a lot for investors, it would seem to worry about. What did you make of? Let's start with stocks. What do you make of the selling that really been pretty persistent here for the last week? Well, it was interesting to note that the volatility that you saw today was really isolated in the equity markets and also the oil markets. Right? If you look over to fixed income, 10-year treasuries were actually up on the day. 30-year treasuries were up about five basis points. 
Inflation break-evens were roughly flat. Uh, and credit spreads, if you're looking at credit default swaps on the investment grade space, were up uh, widened about one basis point, and in high yield, widened about five basis points. So yes, a little bit of risk off, but certainly not to the same degree that you saw in equity markets overall. So obviously, you've had to digest a lot in the last five trading days. You had the hawkish tibet from the Fed. You also have Omicron and the case counts increasing here, likely disrupting economic activity. Uh, JP Morgan Chase released their credit card data today. And if you look at this month versus 2020 and 2019, we're actually well below levels that you saw in previous December. So it's certainly having a bite in economic activity. You're going to see downgrades for the fourth quarter and the first quarter. Uh, and it may actually reflect on some weaker earnings near term. But the third thing was obviously Senator Manchin dropping a bomb about the Build Back Better plan likely being on hold or potentially not moving forward at all. So a little bit of you know risk off uh, profit taking in this type of environment makes sense given the changing dynamics that we've witnessed over the last week. Yeah, and that's a sort of a, a you, you kind of really uh, summed up the three different areas that we're trying to all juggle. So Omicron, is that impacting your forecast? I mean, how are you factoring this into what you expect? The key question with Omicron is whether or not the spending that we're seeing right now is going to be delayed or it's going to be lost altogether. Um, I think obviously you're going to have some foregone spending that's not going to make its way back into the economic bloodstream like you know, uh, holiday travel, um, New Year's Eve travel, for example, uh, and going out and doing things that you would normally do. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I have ratcheted down fourth quarter expectations by 1%, first quarter expectations by a percent and a half. But Nonetheless, if you look out to 2022, I, I see this as a mild disruption overall. And I do think that we're going to get to peak Omicron cases here relatively soon, maybe by the early part of January. Because if you look at South Africa, case loads have peaked, right? You've seen all nine provinces peak in their cases. They're now starting to come down. You didn't see a material increase of hospitalizations, ICU, ventilator use. Uh, deaths were really untrained throughout the entire process. And this has been about twice as fast as what you saw during Delta. It took about 55 days to get to Delta's peak. So we're assuming that 25 days is that trend line with Omicron cases picking up a couple of weeks ago. We're potentially looking at early January, maybe mid-January to see that peaking here in the U.S. And if, if people aren't going to go to the hospital in the same race that we saw with other virus, uh, variants, you don't see a big uptick in case uh, uh, deaths. I mean, again, this uh, disturbance that you're seeing in economic activity is going to be relatively minor. What about what about uh, the impact from overseas? I mean, we do see we know China has a zero tolerance policy. We do see some other countries, you know, considering lockdowns again. I don't think uh, most people that I've spoken to over the last week or so on these programs don't think we're going to see any kind of lockdown in the U.S. But could it exacerbate these supply chain problems that we have? It certainly could, right? I, you know, the White House is making a pivot, uh, not focusing on cases per se, but obviously severity. So it really doesn't appear to be any appetite for a lockdown here in the U.S. So I think that's a very unlikely scenario. But again, following these zero tolerance policies in areas like China and a lot of Asian countries, uh, I think this certainly has the potential to create disruption similar to what we saw with Delta back in the third quarter and perpetuating these goods inflation that we're seeing and making it a little bit more stickier than what I've been anticipating, which is a peaking out of inflation in the first quarter. And then the second quarter, starting to see inflation move meaningfully down throughout the course of 2022. But this could throw a wrench in that viewpoint. And it certainly could perpetuate these supply chain issues and create a massive supply shock 
uh, similar to what we've experienced over the last year. So obviously something that I'm watching, um, you saw the port in China shut down here recently, but you can't contain Omicron because of its oh, contagiousness. Yeah. So I'm not sure if governments are going to come to that realization and realize that it's a, you know, a fight that they can't win and, uh, you know, abandon what they've done in previous sessions. Um, but again, that's something that I think is really going to dictate the near-term direction of inflation. And that's going to be really key for the Fed, isn't it? It will. It will. Now, obviously, if the Build Back Better plan doesn't move forward, that creates less of a growth impetus or an inflation pulse into the economy over the next couple of years. So that could be a reason why the Fed remains on the sidelines longer than what people are anticipating. But again, if you have these supply chain issues pop up again and inflation continues to be sticky and moves up to the upside, that could also cause the Fed to, to move in March, which is what the market's pricing in right now. And what's my base case scenario? Um, but again, the Fed can't really control the supply chain issues. They've talked yeah. about that over the last couple of FOMC meetings, but they can uh, have an impact on aggregate demand. And if inflation is you know, at a seven or eight handle in the next couple of months, when we get to that March meeting, I think a, a rate hike is a foregone conclusion. It certainly seems so. If that's the case, why don't why, what do you make of the action we've seen in the bond market? Because we don't see the two-year, uh, sorry, rather the ten-year. We've seen we've seen reaction in the, in the front end, but we haven't seen the ten-year move um, or or the long end. Are, are, is the bond market telling us something? Are we are we pricing in too much from the Fed? What what do you make of that? Well, you haven't seen a lot of movement. I, I think that's uh, a reason why you haven't seen a lot of movement. It's, it's the Fed is basically cutting off the right tail of inflation right now. Um, so that, you know, a lot of people were concerned about a policy mistake, that they'd be behind the curve. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and they've obviously changed that perception with the FOMC meeting. Uh, and I think obviously that's one reason why you've seen inflation break-evens behave relatively well um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I think the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year Treasury are likely going to rise from here. Uh, especially the 10-year treasury, because if you look at the last 11 hiking cycles, the 10-year treasury usually bottoms a little bit before the beginning of that tightening cycle and moves up on average about 111 basis points. So uh, given the fact that the 10-year treasury has remained sticky and it was up a couple basis points today, this can actually be the beginning of that move that you traditionally see at this part of the cycle. So what 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 is the impact if we if we if we move back to stocks, a lot of the selling we've seen has been concentrated in technology. Are, are, is it going to be a much tougher for that sector if we are facing an environment where we're going to see higher rates here in the U.S.? It will. Obviously, part of their valuation is contingent on low interest rates and a low discount rate. So if the 10-year Treasury is going to be rising from here, given the lofty valuations that are ascribed to that space, that, that's certainly going to be a headwind to overall performance. Um, interestingly, over the last two or three weeks since Thanksgiving, you've actually seen value outperform growth. Now, mm. this is not what you would expect with rates actually moving down in this type of environment. There's been a little bit of concern about Omicron and the growth prospects that it brings along with it. Um, and whenever something isn't acting like it should, it usually gets my antenna up in the fact that value has actually been leading growth, not by a wide margin, but it's been doing well and holding its own, in my opinion, is foreshadowing what potential leadership is going to look like once the clouds clear uh, of the variant and uh, the concerns that we have along with it. So. I do think that information technology um, and growth is going to have a little bit of a headwind in its face. But again, a lot of those companies are really rock solid. The ones that I'm really concerned with are those that are the hyper growth companies that aren't going to have really any meaningful free cash flow for the next four or five years. Um, I'm less concerned with your thing type of, type of stocks that 
are great business models, generate a lot of free cash flow, and actually thrive in a, in a positive uh, growth environment. Yeah, that's what that's what's hard to wrap your head around is, you know, I, I understand what you're saying about the, um, the, the threat from rates, but you, you have an, a situation where some of these companies really seem like they're kind of tied to the future, right? They sort of dominate every part of our life. Um, and if you look on the other side, I don't know, when you were talking about value taking over, I know a lot of people in a higher rate environment are looking to financials, but there's so much disruption happening in that space. How do you counter the, the sort of those larger trends with some of these short-term you know, uh, issues in the economy and in the rate forecast? Again, I think these growth behemoths, uh, the mega cap stocks are, are gonna do quite well. Um, I, I think they could be the next bubble uh, that we see when this uh, stock market cycle is all over. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to go through periodic times where they're going to derate and re-rate, um, but these are excellent companies. And as you say, they're going to disintermediate a lot of areas of the economy and continue to take market share. So um, again, given the fact that they have been the only part of the market that really hasn't sold off in a pronounced way, they may be ripe for, um, again, some um, selling uh, over the course of the next year. Uh, but again, if you have a long-term perspective, I think these are going to be really good stocks to have in your portfolio, and you want to buy them on weakness. Now, from a financials perspective, you know, long in interest rates being tethered here has really hindered performance, even though they've had rock-solid earnings over the last 12 months. Um, I think when you finally get that last piece of the equation of rising rates, even though part of their business models are going to be likely disintermediated or potentially disintermediated, um, again, they have a lot of avenues to, of growth uh, to be able to pad their bottom lines. But I, I, I do think financials looks really good on a, a six to 12 month basis, given my expectation for the economy and, and the rates backdrop and valuations are, are quite compelling. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's jump back in and hear the day's top analysis. Mm-hmm. So, you, when we're looking at the, uh, at the economy, when the Fed is, if we potentially have supply chain issues, the, the concerns about inflation are going to have to be balanced about uh, against, rather, what we're looking at in underlying growth. So what is your forecast? for? I know you said you ratcheted it down, but what are you expecting in terms of economic growth? And, and is the market accurately pricing that in? I think economic growth next year could probably be around 4% on a real basis. Um, if you obviously include inflation, you're, you're up in 8% levels. Um, so that's a really strong nominal GDP growth print. Um, what we found is when nominal GDP growth is over 5%, it really kickstarts operational leverage, um, which is predominantly found in the value complex. Um, and uh, again, given the fact that valuations are relatively cheap in that area, that's why we think that that's an area that could be attractive over the next 12 months. But Again, if inflation continues to surprise to the upside and you do see these lockdowns and supply chain disruptions, there's only so much of that you can pass on to the consumer. And so far, even though confidence levels have plummeted for the consumer because they don't like paying higher prices, there's a difference between not liking and not being able to pay those prices. And they've been able to absorb it. If you look at aggregate weekly payrolls, um, they're up 9.3%. Wage growth is up 4.8%. Aggregate hours worked are up 4.4%. So a 9% handle on what you're taking home 
is more than enough to offset the inflation that we've seen with core C, uh, headline CPI being around 6.8. Um, now, if we get higher inflation, and again, consumers aren't able to absorb that, that's going to weigh on margins. That could be a headwind to the markets next year. But not my base case. Uh, again, until we start to see economies go down overseas, uh, I'm still thinking that uh, you're going to see goods deflation likely in the back half of next year into mm. 2023. But again, that calls up in question right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have a, it would make sense, you have a recession risk dashboard that if it's not up already, I think we can put up. I mean, this was interesting to me because you're tracking different components of the economy, consumer components, business activity, as well as financial conditions. Um, and certainly when you're talking about the, the shape the consumer's in, it would make sense that, you know, some of this, so a lot of the arrows are green, right? Job sentiment, retail sales, Wage growth, I notice, is yellow, though. Why Why is that a concern? I would think in a really tight labor market, that would be looking good. Generally speaking, it is a good thing, but usually wage growth pops up late in an economic cycle. Right. Um, wage growth tends to be one of the biggest drivers of inflation, which the Fed is usually reactive to with tightening monetary policy. Um, the good thing about wage growth is it's one of our longer indicators. Usually wage growth will turn red anywhere from two and a half to two years prior to the end of an economic cycle. Um, so the fact that it's yellow isn't a concern to me, but the one thing I will mention on wage growth is that I do think that there's a lot of labor supply that's out there that's going to come back into the labor market once we get to the first and second quarters of next year. Um, a lot of people are out because they had generous uh, unemployment benefits over the last year. And what we found is the median household has accumulated after-tax pay of 0.8 months prior to COVID, so two and 0.8 months. Um, so the people that are unemployed, they've had that cash cushion, but they're rapidly running through that. And I think that ultimately draws them back into the labor market with about eight and a half million people losing those federal unemployment benefits back in September. Also, um, again, one of the things that we've been watching is people that are scared of coming back because of COVID. Mm. If Omicron ends up being more contagious, but less deadly, you know, this effectively puts an end to the pandemic and it makes it not a pandemic anymore, but endemic. Um, and these in individuals will eventually come back into the labor market as well. Um, so again, um, wage growth is a little bit higher than what we would normally associate at the early part of an economic cycle. But at 4.8%, I could see this coming down into the low 4% range as we move through 2022 and into 2023. And I guess the good news is I don't see any any red signs for recession. So is that completely off the table? And you know, what else should we be keeping an eye on in terms of maybe a lead that would make you concerned? Yeah, it's. I would say it's very unlikely. Nothing is ever completely off the table, right? We we witnessed that with the COVID-related lockdowns <laughs> from a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. um, but the fastest time from a first rate hike to a recession was in the early 1980s. It was a little bit less than a year which means that 2022 recession is very unlikely to be in the cards. But I do think that this is gonna be a faster and shorter cycle than what we've experienced over the last couple, right? Um, I think given the speed of the recovery in the labor markets, the speed of the closing of the output gap that we're seeing, um, I think this is a shorter, hotter and faster cycle. So instead of being closer to 10 years, which has been closer to the average of what we've seen in the last four cycles, I think this one will probably last around five years. So. I'm probably going to start to get concerned around 2025 or 2026. So it, 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 when we look at the, the Fed right now and, and the sort of the balance that they're looking at, we know that they're very concerned about inflation, and that's the focus right now. What about asset markets, though? We've seen in the past when, when they've struggled and you've seen big drops, 
that the Fed has responded. What's what's that balance like now? Is inflation definitely the priority, and will they sacrifice asset markets in order to make sure they get a handle on price stability and fight back those high prices? I think that's the key question for 2022, um, and how much volatility we're going to see, and how much derating we see in the market multiple. Right, the, the Fed pivoted in reverse course back in late 2015 when they were expected to do you know, four rate hikes per year. They only did that first rate hike in December of 2015 and didn't hike for another year. Um, similar thing happened in the fourth quarter of 2018 when Powell famously said we're a long way from neutral. Markets freaked out and had a 20% drawdown. And again, we started to see a reversal of that uh, in the 2019. So uh, again, I, I think the old Fed was more concerned with markets. Um, it does affect financial conditions. But I think we got a new Powell once uh, you know he was renominated to be Fed chair, right? You saw a pretty hawkish pivot last week, uh, much more than a lot of people were anticipating. Uh, again, a twice, fa twice as fast acceleration of that taper compared to 2014. Three right hikes are now in the dot plot. And you don't have a White House that's more con very concerned with the stock market, quite frankly, right? So you don't have that. Not impediment. yet. <laughs> not, not yet. But if the you know, White House is more concerned with inflation at the given moment, uh, for the first time, arguably in the last four decades, um, consumer confidence is not tied with the labor market. It's actually tied with inflation. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not surprising to me that Powell has made this pivot. But again, even if we get some market volatility, with inflation running six, seven, eight percent, I don't think it's enough to really turn the Fed around from their current trajectory. We may get one or two less rate hikes next year. We may get two total or maybe one total if you get a, a pretty substantial washout. Uh, but again, I think the Fed has embarked on this tightening cycle. And given where we are, uh, we're a lot further advanced than what would be normally associated just being about a month, a year and a half into this expansion. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's jump back in and hear the day's top analysis. We have a question. I, I, I think we have an S&P chart. Um, and I mean, it's interesting to look at because it feels certainly we've seen this selling. Um, and, and some people were pointing out that uh, for a moment today, we dipped below the 50-day moving average. Um, but then we came back up, as you noted, we did not have that sort of washout into the close, that kind of capitulation. We sort of found a little bit of support, even though it was a down day. When you look at where the S&P, you know, had, the way it's been behaving, we have Amos asking, do you think that we may still get a, a pump in the market? I think maybe they mean bump, but, do, you know, do you think we could, does it feel like the selling is sort of exhausting itself at this point? Or could we be, still be looking at downside for the S&P 500? I think we're going to have a choppy rest of the week. We could have a choppy week between Christmas and New Year's, but I do think we're probably close to a tradable low. Um, reason being, again, because of the speed of Omicron, I think it's going to become very clear that we're going to peak really quickly, and that's not going to have a lasting effect on economic activity. And once we get through this wave, again, I think next year is going to be a year of resilience where you have much more consistent economic growth and really seeing the last wave, disruptive wave of COVID. And I think markets are really going to key in on that. So 
yeah, I, I think we could have some near-term volatility, but I, I think the markets eventually move past it and trade higher once we get into to January next year. Is now a time? Is now the time to be uh, to be bu a buying opportunity to be buying that dip? We have Joe asking that, or do we need to kind of rethink that knee-jerk tendency to buy the dip when we see declines? No, I, I don't think that's uh, mindset should be over quite yet. I mean, we're really in the second year of this new bull market. Um, there's a lot of greener pastures ahead of us until we get to that recessionary point, uh, and we aren't really going to see a, a material slowdown of economic activity. Given the health of the consumer, business investment, I think, is going to be quite robust next year. Um, you could obviously see some margin compression if companies aren't able to pass on that inflation. But net-net, I think this is still a buy-the-dip type of opportunity. And yes, the Fed is embarking on a tightening cycle. Transitions are always tricky. It always comes with some heightened volatility. But again, for longer-term investors, which us at ClearBridge are, you know, we're looking at this as a, a time to accumulate shares into dollar-cost average into the market. Mm -hmm. Weston mentioned uh, at the top in, in his uh, piece that he sent from Tokyo about the fact that the Chinese are now uh, lowering interest rates for the first time, while all these other governments were really um, spending and putting that pandemic relief in, into effect. The Chinese weren't doing it in the same way. They were really worried about some of the bubbles that were you know, in their economy, not wanting to reinflate what they were trying to get a handle on. Do you, how much will that help? Do you think we're factoring that in? Because presumably that would be a help to the global economy if China is able to sort of ramp up their economic growth. Yeah, if 2009, 2020's word was unprecedented and this year's word was transitory, next year's word is going to be transition, right? The equity market's transitioning into a more volatile environment, the Fed transitioning into a more hawkish position, but the PBOC transitioning into a loosening stance. Uh, but it's too early to kind of wave the white flag and say, this is a time to, to buy risk assets that you're going to see a material turn in the Chinese economy. Now, the LPR rate was the one that was cut today, but it was the one-year rate. Importantly, they left the five-year rate unchanged. And the five-year rate is the one that mortgage rates are keying in on. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they left that stable means that they're not really looking to pivot in the housing market, which is really the, the key driver of the Chinese economy overall. So I'm happy to see them have two RRR cuts here recently. You have seen some uh, bond issuance increase here recently, but we're in the early stages. And I think you could have a pretty weak economic data still in the first quarter of next year and not really start to see that credit impulse increase till we get to the second quarter of 2022. But again, it's a great sign that policymakers are acknowledging the risks and they even moved up their economic conference because I think they are seeing the risks in the economy. But again, I, I don't think that they've done a policy turn meaningfully enough to, to really get excited about risk assets, especially ones in China or economies that are tied to Chinese growth yet. Great, great point. And a really important space that we're going to have to watch because if they do accelerate, I think I would think that that would be significant. What about our housing market? We have a question um, from Yo-Yo asking about where do you see housing? Um, if we're in a potentially higher interest rate environment here in the U.S., what does that do to housing? It's a pretty important sector for us as well. It is. Um, and there's a lot of positive signs coming out of the housing market, right? Uh, building permits, which is one of the indicators that we have on the recession risk dashboard, still flashing a very green color at 1.7 million building permits. Housing starts beat expectations this most, most recent month by 11.8%. The NAHB, which is kind of the premier uh, home builder survey, 
it was actually at 84, um, which is the fourth strongest um, print that you've seen in that series history going back to the mid-1980s. So all good signs that the housing market is healthy and there's a lot of optimism as we look into 2022. Now, certainly prices are up. Affordability from that standpoint is down from where we were a couple of years ago. And even if interest rates move up, call it 50, 75 basis points, maybe 1%, uh, again, I, I think that's going to hurt uh, affordability. But again, even with the increase of prices we've seen, affordability is actually still pretty good given the balance sheets that you have with consumers and the wage gains that we've seen so far during this uh, this cycle. So I'm not expecting 20% year over year in house prices nationally like we're seeing right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get mid single digit, maybe high single digit increases of housing next year because the millennial generation is entering into their household formation years and there's still a lack of supply out there. I yeah. think supply on the market's like one or two months right now, which are very, very low. Yeah, we certainly see it here, uh, but but you you know anecdotally have reports of it in so many places, especially even in second tier cities, right? Because of the whole work from home or virtual or or work flexibility, we'll see how long it lasts. Um, you've seen that that sort of race in some cities um, that hadn't experienced that before. We haven't talked about energy prices, and we had this sort of move today where we saw oil down, but natural gas prices up. How important is that when we talk about the consumer? Um, being able to do things like afford homes and get out there and spend and support the economy? Well, it's really important from a confidence perspective. Um, if you look at the president's approval rating overlaid with a, a barrel, of, uh, a gallon of gasoline, they're mirror images of one another. When gas goes up, approval ratings go down. And again, um, if you look at the UMICH survey, the reason why you've seen really strong drop of consumer confidence isn't concerns about the economy, but it's obviously inflation with gas and food have a very important component of that. So um, yes, oil's down um, substantially from where we were just about a month and a half ago. I think we're probably close to a bottoming of oil. Um, I do think, again, given how quick this variant is going to rip through the global economy, um, I think a lot of economies are gonna come back online by February or March of next year. So I don't see longer term disruption on the demand side of things. But also, I, you've seen supply discipline, not only from shale operators, even though you've seen supply increase here, uh, but also from OPEC plus or ROPEC, including Russia. Uh, and as long as they keep that spare capacity offline, I think you can have oil prices that stabilize from here or potentially move back up into the mid 70s when things get in a more normalized uh, environment. Mm. You know, we talked about value outperforming and maybe some of the opportunities, mega cap tech still looking um, attractive just because of the importance to the economy. What about small caps? Are you looking at the Russell and what's your forecast there? I know people have been tracking that and that's been a little disappointing. Interestingly, small cap value has been outperforming small cap growth here recently in all of this backdrop that we're talking about. So a clear signal to me on what potential leadership is going to look like as we get into the first quarter of next year. But small caps versus large caps, I mean, the valuation discount is near record gaps right now. I mean, there's a huge valuation discount. Usually small caps trade at a premium to large caps. Now they're trading at a pretty massive discount of a couple of turns. Um, and given the fact that small caps are more levered to the U.S. economy, if we've seen our last disruptive wave of COVID and the U.S. economy is much more resilient next year, has much more even growth prospects, very low valuations and you know potentially better earnings than what consensus is expecting is a really strong concoction. And, and I will say this, you look at the S&P 500, much more geared towards goods consumption which I think is one of the key reasons why the S&P 500 has done as well as it has over the last, call it eight, uh, 21 months. 
Um, mm -hmm. Services is much more geared to the Russell 2000. So again, in a more normalized environment, a re-engagement with services, that should lead to outperformance of small caps versus large. I hope we get to re-engage with services, Jeff. I really do. I think that is all our wish for the new year. There's so much fatigue around everything that's been happening. Um, but thank you so much. It's so great to have you on Real Vision. So much great information there. I hope you'll come back and see us again soon. Thanks for having me on, Maggie. Terrific. And I'll be back tomorrow at the same time with Tony Greer. We'll get his uh insights on the market and a look ahead to what he's thinking about for 2022. In the meantime, the conversation continues on the exchange. Take care and good luck out there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.